0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and I'm here with Matt. Matt, can you give uh, an Indiana greeting? Hey, all you
1: cool cats <laughs> kids.
0: Is that the standard greeting now in oh, yeah. Indiana? I heard,
1: uh, I heard that Nicholas, we <laughs> are about to do a, another series, and Nicholas Cage is going to play Joe Exotica. So we can. Oh, surely
0: not. <laughs> and John is in <laughs> no, I, the heartland I'm sure. I'm sure. of Texas. How do you say uh, greetings in Texas?
1: Yeah. howdy y'all that all you said <laughs> as part of your intro is here's matt and here's john but you you didn't say anything else so just noting that for the record
0: oh and oh let's finish it hey hey matt uh is with us today and matt <laughs> describe to us what our conversation is gonna be
1: uh we're going to talk about sin and stuff <laughs> i wasn't prepared for your question you Oh, that's going in, Matt. We're talking about you know heaven, hell, God, the devil, sin, death, righteousness, justice. It's going to be great. We
0: already know that it's going to be good, right? You, well. you
1: know that's Augustine's
2: take. It's like yeah, there's sin, but it'll all work out. God is good, and God brings about the good of all things. It's all going to be okay. Evil's yeah. not a problem. It's
0: all going to be okay
1: yeah that's right. and and john before we because we all know that how much paul shines when it comes to sin and evil and death um so we want to get his thoughts on this but before we do uh <laughs> i want to start with you how is sin then connected with with evil
2: yeah so that's uh i think it's an interesting question because it would be easy just to say well sin and evil are synonymous but i think we all realize well that can't quite be true and um There's, you know, the classical way of distinguishing between moral evil and natural evil. But it's just to say that I think we have to be careful with lumping everything in together. Like, obviously, every time we sin, some evil is committed. But evil itself, it can be more nuanced because evil is more about the depriving uh, a deprivation of something's good or a perversion of something's good. And we would say, ultimately, evil has no cause per se. Whereas we would say ultimately the thing, same thing about sin, the, the problem for us conceptually is that I would think nearly all of our encounters with sin is by encountering sin caused by somebody. And so it, if we begin to think that by explaining sin somehow we've explained evil, we may miss Uh, What's going on there that no actually uh, sin and evil are ultimately privative even though that will never be our experience of these things. So I think it's a tricky relation between the two. But I think we could say unqualified that every time we sin, we do commit some evil. That is to say, when we sin, we deprive either ourselves or we pervert ourselves or some other thing or some other one of some goodness. It's destructive. It's violence in that way, or it's violent in that way, and it necessarily then would deform what is ultimately good about us. So this goes back to maybe, you know, Kierkegaard's points about truth. If truth is a way, then in some way, not only is truth about human existence and where we're headed, but it's also a guide for us so that we, there are two ways, as the Didache says, you know, one leads to life or one could be characterized as life and one could be characterized as death. And there's a great difference between the two. Uh, So whenever we talk about sin and evil, I think we are talking about, A way of being or a way of existing, but we're also talking about things that are ultimately privative or they're surds; they're not explainable. So Paul said something really interesting earlier that I would like to agree with and also clarify for myself. That uh, we're not talking about something that's ultimately mysterious, but we're also not talking about something that we might define. So we can define sin because we understand that it has, you know, relation of secondary causality between finite. People. But we're not going to explain sin on an ontological scale, and we're certainly not going to be able to explain evil in that way, because there is no logic to it. That's the whole point of uh, describing sin and evil as being ultimately privative or uh, per, you know, perversions of the good, rather than some existing thing in themselves, which also then points to why salvation is crucial for understanding what is sin and evil in our world. It's because... We are then saying that salvation, or what salvation gives us—a right relation to God and our proper end—that's that primary, and that's the truth of reality. And somehow, sin and evil are untruths.
1: Yeah, and and Paul, we joke and you know call you the master of sin and the master of evil and <laughs> the master of death. And- uh, and it's funny, you know, but to sort of just peek behind the curtain, you know, a little bit, I think that Jonathan and I would both agree that without you, you know, you sort of introduced us ultimately, I think, to the glories of the gospel and the goodness of God and of peace and all these different things. So we joke, but we really, it, it was it was so helpful for us, I think, to understand you know, kind of the gravity of what we're talking about today with, uh, with sin and, and evil and death and our orientation to those types of things. So, Paul, in your estimation, then, how is sin connected with evil?
0: Yeah, I really like what John said there, and that is that a wrong-headed tendency is what is called a theodicy. That is that in some way we're going to explain evil. But of course, the very nature of evil is such that it escapes explanation that we can't account for it in its origins. We can say some things about it. There is this category in Scripture that in some way, evil seems to precede the human uh, pair, you know, that it is there in the form of the serpent. Paul will refer to the devil. That evil is this malign force. Is it spiritual? Is it, you know? Again, uh, I don't think we need to nail it down we we don't want to you know paul will talk about it in a lot of ways our tendency then i think maybe a, a key difference is in what john is saying that this thing does not have any ontological ground that it is a parasite on the good a way of understanding evil's entry or even the allowance for sin is perhaps there in paul's description you know, he'll, he'll do this a couple of times. He's going to use the phrase right. futility, and in the Greek the word there can mean either deception or a kind of futile suffering. And it seems to have both. But, of course, he's describing creation as itself being subject to a kind of futility, a kind of surdness, if you want to put it in that way. There's two ways of, you know, reading Scripture. There's two ways of understanding reality. And I don't mean the second account to in any way be a theodicy, but I think it is a better understanding. That is, if we begin with creation and work our way forward and imagine that creation is a finished, accomplished fact by the time we get to Christ, I think we're going to misread what Paul is doing in Romans 8 among the early church fathers, but certainly there in Paul, the picture is that creation is not finished. If we think about creation in terms of creation ex nihilo, that it's creation from nothing. Jacques Lacan, by the way, does a a lot with this whole thing and talks about, oh, it's from the nothing. Uh, Schelling will write three projects attempting to describe Oh, it's out of the nothing. And of course, all of these things are, are a misdirection, a misunderstanding. But I think the misunderstanding is quite insightful. It's there in Hegel that Hegel's going to talk about this nothingness as if it's something. And that's going to occur again and again philosophically. It's there certainly in Hegel. It's there in Eastern traditions but I think what is being described is something that's also there in our picture of the reign of death, that the creation from out of nothing is not a process that is complete, and that it will be complete in Paul's description in chapter 8, that the creation is groaning in travail. That is, this birth is still in process. The fulfillment of Christ is a fulfillment, ultimately, of the events of creation. We're still in the final scenes of the the creation. One way of thinking about human relationship to, you know, where does this thing come from? Well, you know, in uh, ancient cosmologies, it was very often the case It's even there in an Aristotelian understanding that the origin is an original chaos, that there's an original kind of dualism, and it's from out of this chaos, you know, that you get balance. Of course, I think that's wrong. Part of what is taking place in Genesis is a, a different picture of the chaos. The chaos is not a necessary part. The nothing is not actually part of creation. But in fact, there is this through evil, through whatever that malign force is, or through human sin, there is an entry point and a spreading out of futility. And that's why that redemption through Christ, through a human, there is a closing of the futility. There is a closing of the nihilo, of the creation ex nihilo. That is that the nothingness is in some way, if we think of the nothingness as the opening to futility, to suffering. That's the way Paul is going to talk about it. That human suffering, the suffering of creation then, is in and through this futility. Evil then takes this opportunity of the contingencies of creation, is maybe a way of thinking of it. That creation does have its own integrity. But it's not a completeness. It it is a contingency. And the contingency, the finitude, is an opening then for human sin. And so if we think of human sin in terms of not a closure of creation, in, in other words, that there's a suspension through the entrance of sin and death that that is a continuation of a spreading out of the futility that's undone in Christ. So that we can think of Christ as in the beginning was the word. Well, this word is completing creation out of nothing. Creation ex nilo continues. That's a very different way of depicting. It's not that we necessarily account for evil, but this is the way that Paul compares it. You know, in Romans 8, He says that in comparison to the glory, that eschatologically, if we look forward to the completed glory, this suffering will fade. You know, it it doesn't compare, you know, the sufferings then, like the pains of childbirth. You don't need the pain, and in fact, once you have the child, the pain is of, of no great consequence. That's the way that Paul thinks about evil and human sin, that in some way, with this eschatological vision of the completion of creation, these things no longer have a place. There is no longer futility. There is no mode that we can be divided off. Spiritual, the principalities and powers. You know, he goes through there, Paul, at the end of Romans 8, he lists all those things that are part of evil, perhaps, spiritual forces, angels even uses that, principalities and powers. And then he talks about human suffering, persecutions, you know, martyrdom. And he says none of these things then can divide us from the love of God in this new world order.
1: Yeah. So when I think of original sin, you know, as you were explaining all this, I'm sitting here thinking like, man, we're really, we're really, you know, just by virtue of being born into the world, sort of thrown into being thrown into sort of a tough situation, right? It's Paul, the way that he describes this, Paul he always says that this thing will grab you by the throat, you know, and I think about how, and I was born in, you know, relative privilege, but when you think about everything that we're sort of up against, right, you know, you're born into the world. Most of us, if you're anything like me, you know, you have this sort of selfishness, of course, some of us are born into, uh, you know, abusive homes. Some of us are born into just abject poverty. Some of us are born into situations where we're facing all sorts of oppressive systems of racism or of all sorts of abusive sorts of uh, relationships with other people. We have our own insecurities that we have to deal with. We have mental illnesses. We have uh, anxieties and we deal with depression and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder from the trauma that we've gone through. But the list could just sort of go on and on to kind of bring the discussion back, you know, just down to earth if we need to. It's like we all, I think on... In, in some way, understand what we're talking about here. And that is, is that we're really up against this thing. And on top of all that, like you said, Paul, it's like, well, even the devil himself seems to be stalking the human race. John, I want to start with you. What, and this could seem like a Sunday school question and, and maybe in one sense it is, but um, I think on the other hand, this is a profound, this is the question that everybody wants to an answer to, right? And that is, is what's God's solution to all this? What's God's solution to sin?
2: yeah uh paul alluded to it quite nicely just a moment ago and that's just thinking about this if evil and sin are ultimately a nothing there's no ontological reality there well how do you do away with a nothing <laughs> how do you get rid of something that doesn't exist in some way it has to do with the fullness or a completeness or the perfection of something So this is what's happening in Resurrection. It's quite obvious to see how uh, Resurrection already assumes that death is a problem because you're resurrected from the dead, right? But we've also said that death is really the controlling factor, or at least an orientation to physical death, uh, whatever we might name that, is a controlling factor of why we sin. So this is first to say that if Resurrection is the answer to the problem, then uh, sin or evil is not uh, doesn't have any positive role to play in who God says he is or reveals himself to be in, his, in the world or through the world or in, in in relationship to his creatures as well. So that neither God is nor the divine economy that orders creation is dependent upon evil. Uh, evil is not a teleological necessity of God's final causality of all things. Uh, so that the goal or the solution is for union with God, friendship with God, for the human race, but also, you know, all things finding their proper end in relation to God, rather than a assumed relation to finitude, uh, or a relation to death, which would, from which arises sin. So I think it is it's quite a difficult answer actually because. The questions that that might bring up is like, well, what's the place then of sin and death in the cosmos? Or how does God relate to uh, the the reality of there being sin or evil in the cosmos when we're saying that God is both the source and the final end of all things? So I don't know if we want to explore that a little bit, but... Um, what do you think?
1: Well, I mean, I liked what you talked about in terms of, uh, to me, again, just in a very basic sense, that God's solution to sin, in some ways, himself, right? His union with himself. Mm-hmm. Sin for me is that, that's what I said at the very beginning, is that obviously it's something more. I think it's right, that, there, that it is a cosmic force, and we're up against all this stuff, that we have these natural predilections towards, our addictions, and all this different manifest mm-hmm. itself right in all these different ways and you guys put it in, in different language that's very helpful you know sort of seeking our, our good and sort of finite ends and things like that. but for me ultimately god's solution to sin at least in my own life and in my own journey is for me to unite myself with him and to to the life of the church to the to the sacramental life and mm-hmm. I think that's already overcoming what we've said is the problem, uh, the
2: way death pervading humanity causes sin, because it's Jesus who reveals God to be the resurrection and the life. So if it's in some way a misrelation to our finitude that causes us to sin, Jesus has said, well, uh, you don't have to worry about that anymore because I am with you and I am resurrection and life, abundant life. We remain finite, but we are no, uh, in no way is our life dependent on our finitude our life is actually related to the eternal and infinite life of God
1: yeah and I, I mean I think God's solution to sin too in another sense is uh, is freedom right that the son truly can set, set us free you know from those addictions mm-hmm. from and and I think that he uses the church you know to help us through our problems you know through our friendships with, uh, with people who are filled with his spirit you know who love us people who accept us it seems again like it could be like some flaky thing but it's not this is what the world needs yeah to, you, know? And, you know you bring up
2: a, I like your use of the word freedom, because we would generally take freedom to mean just the opposite of choosing God, right? We would think freedom means like arbitrary choice or something like that. But if God is truly the source of all being, and if God is the end of all being, then uh, what freedom would mean would be to be free to be what we are, we ought to be, free to be who we are created to be, which would ultimately be to have a relationship with God or to have, be friends of God, to have union with God in some sense.
1: Yeah, no, I think that this really does manifest itself. When I talk to people, you, you can get this sense really quick. It, you know, when I tell them that your sin is not what makes you human, that like completely goes against the grain of what most people think. That's right. Like, most people think that to err, you know, it's human. And it's divine. Like people think that what makes them human is their sin. And then so I just ask them, I say, well, then, what do you say about the humanity of Jesus Christ, right? Because what we're saying as Christians is that Jesus was the truly human one, and he was without sin. And so sin isn't what makes you human, it's what dehumanizes us, right? right. Jesus is the truly human one. And so that whole sort of illusion that uh, what you've talked about in our other podcast with the gnomic will, we can talk about it a million different ways with freedom, and we think that, oh, you know, no, my, my ability to choose sin is what makes us free. But of course, we've been giving a counter narrative to that, saying, "Well, no, that's that's enslavement, and that, that's the thing that Christ has uh, set us free to do, and that is to do His will, and His will is always our good, the good of the other, the good of you know our neighbor, of of the world." And so, to me, that was kind of a, a mind blowing, you know, realization that I guess I could buy that Jesus was fully God, but for yeah. me to buy He was fully human was a really tough one, right? Yeah. But to realize that. Oh, well, what dehumanizes us, though, what, where we resign our freedom, where we resign our dignity as creatures, is when we enter into evil or into sin or yeah. to sort of inhabit or embody the, the resurrection story.
2: I mean, it's so counterintuitive, right? Because the answer people will give to the question of, like, why is there evil in the world? is uh, People want to say, well, free will. Uh, And they imagine that what they have just said is the exact same thing as the good of freedom. (laughs) And that's just, that's totally backwards. It's an awful, it's it's very American, in other words, right? It's like, well, even if our freedom of choice isn't good for us, we want that freedom. We want to be free to go get the coronavirus at our hairdresser or or X, Y, or Z. Um, And we're going to equate that with the good of freedom. Uh, it's really just kind of mind-boggling.
1: Yeah, and I mean, Jesus is very clear about this. He says that the one who commits sin is a slave to sin. Yes. Anybody who can listen to our old podcast and listen to my story, you know, I, I can, I can attest, you know, the fact that Jesus was telling the truth there. It's like sin. Is not what makes us free. Sin is what enslaves us, and so God's solution to sin is to free us from it through through the power of the Spirit in, in Christ, in relationship with uh, with His Church. It's theosis. It's His solution to sin is, is for us. I think to overcome it. I was just reading, uh, you know, the Saint George Macdonald, the great Saint George Macdonald today, and he talks a lot about this. You know, he says that well, you know, it's not that God does it all. It's not that God is the one, you know, God actually gives us opportunities where he wants us to freely sort of choose the good, right? He wants us to, how he makes us free is that we reject evil and that we choose good because that's who he is. And so (laughs) it's not like we're just robots and we're just, it's like, he really wants us to make us, you know, like him, like Jesus, right? That's the whole point is deification. He gives us, I don't know if you'd want to call it an opportunity, right? But, I mean, this is also how I would also call, you know, Saint Origen. So, obviously, George MacDonald nor Origen are considered saints, although they both should be. Uh, but this is how Origen talks about it, too. He says, well, yeah, you know, the reason why the Lord, you know, allows these, these demons to tempt you is precisely so that you can vanquish them, you know, so that you can free yourself from their grip. His solution to sin is for you to have victory over it through Jesus Christ. And so, Paul, what, uh, as far as you're concerned, what do you want to add to, to what we're saying about what God's solution is to sin?
0: Well, first of all, I, I think we should point out that the way that I previously told the story that I think Paul is telling is the whole thing is not bound up in the solution to sin. Yeah. But certainly there is the solution. In other words, that, that God's purposes are being worked out in Christ Part of those purposes certainly are an overcoming of sin. But that is not the exhaustion. That doesn't exhaust what Christ has done. So if we go back through and we think of the role that sin has played, what I was actually doing was describing what salvation is. Well, salvation then, if sin is holistic, we know that salvation and what God is doing is itself holistic. It's a systemic, it's holistic, and this is the way the New Testament will talk about it. It's a world, it's a cosmos, that it is its own, its alternative wisdom. In other words, there's the wisdom of man, which is foolishness in the sight of God, and then there's the wisdom of God. And so we need to talk about salvation as systemic, but a counter-system. In other words, it's over and against this other system. If sin is a self-deception, well, actually, then we understand this is the significance of the resolution that we now have the truth, and the truth is very specific, and we can run this down. You know, this is what I do in my in my work. I think this is what Paul's doing. And again, you know, John is right that we didn't have to wait for modern psychology to recognize this. No, this is a real-world solution that we have access to just in in the church. But the idea is that the revelation of Christ is apocalyptic. It's a breaking in. It is not on a continuum with human wisdom. It's a confounding of human wisdom. It's not on a continuum with the systems of this world. It is a confounding and reconstituting of the world. And so Christ's truth, when we talk about revelation and truth, that's why it's so bizarre that you have a man on the cross, that you have the God-man. You know, obviously, this is different. And it's oriented not to death, but here is life. And I think life, you know, we've talked about who God is, life, love, you know, beauty, the, the idea that All of this, then, we have access to in Christ, that life becomes joyful, that, you know, think of the the fruits of the Spirit. One of the things, though, that I think we often miss, and of course that forging plowshares is all about, is that peace captures this alternative. If sin is this alienation, this disruption, this breaking of relationship, what peace is, it's not just, oh... I'm not uneasy, but peace is this positive force. So if sin is a kind of, you know, force, well, certainly this peace is a force, a richness of spirituality that we gain then not through human pride. You know, there's an undoing, a specific undoing. Pride is displaced then through humility. Humility is a kind of strange Thing. It's a kind of Christian virtue that's not found in the Greek lists of virtues. But for a Christian, the ocean of humility is that somebody is teachable, that they're they're open, and we're open specifically to God and his word. So that's a, that's one way of talking about this. But, of course, ultimately what we're describing is sin is an orientation to death undone through resurrection, and through the death, Christ's death defeats this orientation. It's a reversal. Instead of refusing the cross, he takes up the cross. Instead of refusing... You know, so as we follow him, it's not a magical thing that happens simply in the mind of God, but we can trace out this thing in our own lives that we can, Christ is a model. Uh, he's not simply an object of adoration. But he's a model for us to follow. And so the undoing of sin is there and available to us in Christ. Pictured in, you know, that's what baptism is. It, in Romans 6, he traces this out that we can participate in the death. You know, you're baptized, you die with Christ. It's not just any death, and then you're raised with Christ. That we inaugurate the life of Christ the participation of Christ, in Christ in our own lives. And so I, I think it's a real world overcoming. Uh, I, think, I think we can get caught up in a, a kind of legalism and imagine, you know, that perfection or, you know, in a Wesleyan, I'm thinking, Wesleyanism has a lot of good things going for it. But I think there is also the sense that, you know, Paul doesn't really, as a Christian, the, the sin principle doesn't seem to plague him it's not that he's without sin but where it had been definitive of him before that's no longer who paul is but we can say that about all of us can say that that's not who i am that's no longer definitive that that there is this then the reconstitution of our identity in christ
1: i like that i mean just in simple terms that god's solution to sin is to undo it um, and I want to ask John about that here in a second. It reminded me of uh, of Romans 14, you know, Paul will later say that, you know, the kingdom of God isn't a matter of sort of, you know, nitpicking, eating and drinking and stuff like that, but of righteousness and of peace and of joy in the Holy Spirit. So, you know, God's solution to sin is to undo it through righteousness, right? By literally making us righteous. And maybe that's a topic for another day, you know, what is justification, but I think that that does play into our... Patient, that well in the way that john has explained it and i want him to to explain this to us one more time before we get to the last question is that he transforms he transforms it in some way right uh, john you've explained it um and i don't, don't want to use the wrong wording but that is it that he transforms people into good
2: yeah um, i mean this is uh, this is this also goes back to the work of bernard lonergan and Robert Doran, and it's this idea that God transforms evil into the supreme good. Well, what does that mean, right? But I think you have to remember that when we're talking about evil, it is ultimately just a privation. And so, what this would mean is that through the cross, we're given a way of existing that tends towards uh, perfection, that we partake of the divine nature. Now, of course that's the work of eternity so it's not like a grace dump and there it is it's very it's participatory uh, this is what christians have long known to be true uh, when they take up ascetic disciplines so you know fasting praying so on and so forth What working for that matter serving others like we build up habits in ourselves until these virtues that come through faith Uh, or virtues that come through the spirit, faith, hope, love, um, these become co-natural to who we are by practicing them. And this is, you know, it's interesting because this is, for us, pretty much par for the course, but I guess uh, the resurgence of virtue ethics isn't all that old in uh, the Western mind. You know, maybe as late as the 1980s is when Alistair MacIntyre starts writing about virtue ethics. And um, even if you don't buy MacIntyre's conception of that, that's just a sort of taken off again and flowered in Western Christianity. But it is just this idea that we overcome evil by becoming like God. And it's, I mean, in that sense, it's not as if we're overcoming evil by some work that we do, but it's by cooperating with the grace of God that is given to us.
1: Yeah, and John, when you told me that, what, what kind of crystallized it, at least in my mind, in simple terms, is that God took the the worst thing that's ever happened, the most evil thing that's ever happened, and that is, you know, the son of God being crucified and somehow transformed it into the greatest thing. yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I mean, I think even, you know, this is an interesting way of reading Joseph and Arimathea and Nicodemus taking down the body of Christ. Because in John's Gospel, he mentions that, of course, you know, these Nicodemus comes by night and Joseph of Arimathea was too afraid to, to be an open follower of Christ during his life. But it's almost as if in Christ's death they've already lost the fear of death. It doesn't matter anymore. Mm. And I don't know that they even had a faith in the resurrection quite yet, but it's almost as if even before they could articulate or understand the turn that has happened for the cosmos, the cosmos itself has already made this turn to where death's teeth have been ripped out of its mouth or something like that. You know, death is no longer something to be feared,
1: but has been tamed. That's good. That's good. And I think it transitions us into into our last question for today to bring douglas campbell to the forefront you know he argues that peace is constitutive of a resurrection life uh saved from sin and so i want to start with with john and ask what does it mean then for the resurrection life to be constituted by peace
2: yeah i think uh you know douglas campbell's exact phrase is that we have a mind of peace i don't know if i would take up that exact language but this idea of peaceableness or that the way the kingdom of god is pictured throughout scripture is a kingdom of peaceableness Uh, Well, what does that mean? I mean, of course, it means that we're at harmony with one another. It means that we're at peace with God. In Ephesians, Paul says that Jesus is our peace, um, that he has reconciled two different, you know, the two have become one new humanity in Christ. Is This idea that there's no more animosity. I think what is being addressed there is, again, going back to the fact that we sin because of our orientation to death or because we don't know what to do with the fact that we're finite and mortal uh, would be another way of looking at that. And in that sense, what is happening is that as Christians, through the cross and through taking up the cross of Christ, are the evils that we may remember or hope we have been is transformed into the victory of God. That we realize that no longer when we meet the other, or even when we engage the world, do we need to subdue or exclude in order that we might have more life in and of ourselves, because we realize how futile that way of existence is. But we actually now have the life of God in us through the Holy Spirit that we have an abundant life and that we are to mediate and share this life with others. And that is necessarily, I think, to relate to others peaceably. We don't fear them. We don't fear what they can do to us, but we would like to share the love of God and through ourselves
1: mediated by sharing life and sharing the truth of who God is in the world. Nice. And so Paul, we want to give you the last word on this. Of course, you know, forging plowshares exists to transform lives and minds for the peaceable kingdom and so we'll give you the last word on what does it mean for a resurrection life to be constituted by peace well you know i think you you do need to state the obvious
0: and that is that it can't be violent (laughs) but but we have a christianity that step one they're missing step one that most christianities i don't know if that's fair but most christianities Do not put peace front and center as part of the necessity of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I'm afraid that what has happened is that the logic of the systems of this world have so shaped the major traditions of the church that we find ourselves in alignment with the necessity to commit acts of violence, to join in the wars of the world violence becomes a necessity. And so peace then rises above that. Violence is not a necessity. So all of the things that John said, you know, there is this positive peace, that it's life, that it's not a chaos, that it's no longer our job to bring harmony. You know, that's the human peace, is that we would fight this war in order to establish this peace. God does this peace. God establishes this kingdom. And, of course, it is a kingdom of peace and peacemakers. I cannot imagine that a church can really be a church that is not one that takes peace, nonviolence, the love of God. You know, we're not going to engage in forms of human sacrifice, human wars, even in terms of killing criminals or whatever, I think that for the Christian, the age for the necessity of violence has ceased. This should be the characteristic thing that forms our communities. It should be the characteristic that forms our individual personalities, our interactions with other people. John described it in, uh, you know, the absence of fear, and that's the way that Paul describes it. It's actually a phrase there in Romans 8. It's there in Hebrews that the way that the Satan takes control is in and through slavery to the fear of death. I think that explains the violence. We would put off death. We would resist death through violence. What peace means is that we have access to life through God that is not dependent upon our grab for it, our establishing it. There is a unity, a life, a peace that is available to us that we can just join, that we can just rest in. It is no longer Romans 7 kind of agonistic struggle. It's a depiction in Romans 8. You know That's the characteristic form of the one who has put on the mind of Christ, that he's no longer controlled by the forces, the logic, the angels, the principalities and powers, the systems of this world that are over and against the peace of Christ. And so I think peace embodies, it encompasses the salvation that's available to us in Christ. This is at the very heart of the gospel. We have to enact this peace in our lives, in our communities, and certainly in a spiritual sense, a recognition of it, but also in a practical sense, that we are no longer people of violence.
1: Paul oh, taking us out with the Kedig I love it. Paul, do you want to tell folks where they might be able to learn more uh, about forging plowshares or how they might be able to help? If you go to our
0: website, we have a website, forgingplowshares.org. And through Forging Plowshares, we have the Plowshares Bible Institute, our next class that is coming up is in the book of Ephesians and Philemon. Uh, if you like us on whatever media you might listen to the podcast on, that point other people to our podcast. Good, good, guys. Great conversation, guys.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org donate.